Welcome everybody to today's podcast from the Greeley Company. The focus today will be on credentialing and privileging challenges and strategies and tactics as we face COVID-19 in all the hospitals in America who are on the front line of this very challenging pandemic. So first of all, our hearts go out to all of you who are on the front lines. We say thank you for the work you do every day and you are saving lives and we really appreciate that. The primary reason that we go through the activities we call credentialing and privileging is to support delivery of safe care by competent practitioners. When we are in the middle of a pandemic, as we are now, we will have to decide which of the steps that we traditionally take to do this as well as we can need to be changed because we're in an emergency. How many times have we heard during this time the word unprecedented? And everyone needs to be authorized to be able to do the right thing to take care of patients as safely as possible. So as we talk about steps to be taken in credentialing and privileging, we recognize that depending on how severe this crisis becomes in any particular hospital, community, or city, that people on the front lines will be making decisions about how much we're gonna follow the rules versus we just gotta do the right thing for the patients. We'd like to provide to you in this podcast some guidance on the appropriate rules to think about following to protect patients because we've had experiences in other crises where people have shown up and may not be competent and we need to make sure that we take those steps. But as always, it's do your best in these unprecedented times. And so let us now move forward with providing you the best guidance we can related to the credentialing and privileging steps you can take to support that goal. Now, let me introduce uh, myself. My name is Dr. Rick Sheff, Chief Medical Officer with the Greeley Company. And I will be interviewing today, Dr. Mary Hoppe, who is uh, a leader of the Greeley Company. She heads up our bylaws uh, work and our peer review work with all of the hospitals and healthcare systems we work with throughout the country. And it is my pleasure to welcome you today. Thank you very much, Mary, for joining us and making time for this. Thank you for inviting me, Rick. All right, so as we get started, I do want to let everybody know that at Greeley, we are seeking to create resources to help those of you on the front lines. So at our website, greeley.com, we have created a COVID-19 resource center and we invite you to go there for uh, access to free resources, including uh, previous podcasts, blogs, and uh, all future podcasts and blog posts will be available at that site as well. So now let's get started. So Mary, as hospitals prepare for and cope with the COVID-19 pandemic, what are the key credentialing and privileging challenges they're going to face? Rick, I really have kind of thought that I put this into four buckets. I think one of the challenges is 
how do we credential and privilege potentially all of these new people coming into our facility that want to help out with our crisis in our in our hospital i think a second thing challenge that we face is oh my goodness um how do we um increase the increasing scope of people who are already existing on our medical staff and maybe worked in the ambulatory environment and now want to go back to the inpatient environment or want to increase the scope of the activities they want they had previously been privileged for i think a third bucket is what do we do with all of those appointments that are expiring and in the near future and how do we continue or not continue with the recredentialing process during this disaster time and i think the fourth one is is many states have tried to say you know we want you to stay at home as much as possible and much of our work can be done remotely but what if some of our process is still on paper in our offices so i think there's there's things that can be done for each of these buckets and i think we'll probably go into them in a little bit uh further uh, dis discussion later but when we credential those people coming in from the outside we want to think of our disaster privileging process when we think of people expanding their scope who are already privileged on our medical staff. I think we want to think about our temporary privileging process. For our recredentialing, I think we have to look particularly at the Joint Commission, which is waiving now on a temporary basis the uh, two-year reappointment cycle and allowing people to go beyond that cycle. And I think we'll just probably discuss that again uh, a little bit further, a little bit later. And then obviously the, the challenges of working remotely and working with our IT departments to facilitate our, our, our remote working process as much as possible. So those I think are the four main challenges that we're gonna be needing to address. That's a great way to organize our, our time together and the thinking for those on the front lines. Uh, as they face these credentialing and privileging challenges. So let's tackle that uh, first group, which is uh, disaster privileges. These are folks who are in the community saying, wow, my community needs this and I I'm ready to sign up. I I've done that to my local hospital. I uh, haven't practiced in a long time, but I've, I've let them know that I'm available uh, if they need this. And so please explain to our listeners in which circumstances we should use disaster privileges, and then let's get practical Practical about how do they implement disaster privileges. Okay, um, I think of all the accreditation agencies, um, Joint Commission probably has some of the most explicit um, uh, guidelines and guidance on how to do a disaster privileging process. And one of the things um, that they look look at is, who would some of these people be and how can we truly verify their, their who they are? And so in many times people, there are people across this country that go from disaster to disaster. They're, they're volunteers privileged by, by potentially uh, one of the disaster um, assistance teams like the, the disaster medical assistance teams, the medical reserve corps, 
There's also um, the emergency system for advanced registration of volunteer health professionals. And these are the people that have gone to Katrina, have gone to Sandy, have gone to various um, um, types of disasters in our country and, and do that uh, fairly regularly. So they may already be signed up and have some of this special credentials to do that. Otherwise, what we can look at is, do they have um, some identification that they've been granted some authority by either a state uh, or the federal government? Um, does somebody on our medical staff potentially already know who they are? Maybe they've worked there before and they are those retired folks and wanna come out. But what's really interesting is, is in most of those organizations in a disaster that's somewhat limited, compared to today's disaster, you're gonna, they're also gonna need to have a current license to practice or, or some verification that they're practicing somewhere else and wanna help you out here. But as we've heard, it, things are so dire in some of our states that the governors are actually waiving um, some, of, some of the license restrictions because they want those retired folks coming out out of retirement and helping out and some of those people may have allowed their licenses to lapse so depending on state to state you might want to check and see whether whether you need to have a license to practice because because there are there's more than one state that is allowing people to to practice on those expired licenses just because of the exigencies of the current circumstances. But those disaster privileges are for those people coming in from the outside. And and really what you need to, to do to get them privileged is, is very minimum. It is what you have either in your bylaws or policy, and it may be a singular individual. It may be somebody like a CEO, a chief medical officer, a president of the medical staff. It may be a singular individual who can, can um, authorize this to occur. Now, there are some downstream stuff we have to do. We have to be able to identify these people by some kind of badge so that that other people working with them know who they are and, and what they're doing in the institution because you don't want just any Tom, Dick, or Harriet coming in um, off of the street. So you want to have that that validation and that identification over time. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yes. I just want to emphasize that because I think there were ex folks who had experiences in Katrina uh, in New Orleans when uh, someone would show up in a white coat and say, I want to help, and they had no medical training, and uh, they they may even have had a psychiatric history. So uh, those are the kinds of instances in which we need to take some specific minimum steps to make sure they do have a license somewhere, they're practicing somewhere, or as you say, if their license has lapsed, that they're authorized still at the state level to do this. Mm -hmm. Can you also address the the licensing? If I'm licensed in another state, uh, can I help in this state? Absolutely. In disaster circumstances, you need to have either a license to practice somewhere, or you have to have that that state government give that waiver. So again, in those disasters where those people go from state to state to state, they're not licensed in all those states, but they have a license to practice in 
either a state license or a federal license within the United States to practice. And again, we would need that in those more localized disasters, but in this current pandemic, like I said, you'd need to look to your state government to see whether they have waived those licensure requirements. Okay, and you mentioned the Joint Commission. Uh, they don't accredit all the hospitals, and in fact, the Correct. big dog here is CMS. So what it does CMS say about disaster privileges and DNV and HFAP and any of the others? What are they saying about disaster privileges? And if they're silent, what does that mean for a hospital who's using them for accreditation? Um, CMS is very um, loose. It does not address the subject specifically. Um, so so um, the majority of hospitals in this country are accredited by either Joint Commission, uh, DNV, HFAP, or CIHQ. There are a certain amount of, of hospitals in this country that don't have an accreditation agency. They're just um, reviewed by CMS through their, their state health departments, et cetera. So CMS itself does not give specific guidance. Um, uh, HFAP and DNV do give some guidance, but it's not to the explicitness of, of what Joint Commission does. So I can say for those organizations that may not have something really well defined out, we know Joint Commission is at this point in time still the largest accreditor in the United States. Their process through their deemed status has been approved by by CMS so that if you follow those principles and and many of them are, are really good things it is um, again they specifically state you need to have some identification ie some badging we do want to have some review of your performance over time whether it's just working next next to somebody and they're kind of overseeing you or if at a later date we look at anything but again um, probably a little bit less of that review in the more exigent the circumstances are. Um, also, they give some guidance on, again, how do we verify licensure? Again, if at all possible during the disaster and internets are still up, you know, we still have access to the internet and be, can be able to go out and verify a license. Again, to make sure that we don't have those situations like happened in Katrina. Again, unless those licensures uh, requirements have been waived by by the governor. So again, I go back to Joint Commission just because when I look at the disaster privileging requirements, they are probably the most explicit and make you think of all those things like IDing and review and the 72-hour verification and things like that 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 are good for you to try to remember in um, when you've developed your policy to look look towards those for guidance. You mentioned 72-hour verification. Could you clarify what that means here? Uh, what that means is, is when somebody shows up and and either they they have maybe a paper copy of a license, or they have their hospital ID card, or they got their their ID card that says they're part of one of these disaster assistance teams. What what the medical staff office is going to want to do is, okay, yeah, I got. I got Mary Hoppe, MD, here showing up to my organization. Uh, says here that she's licensed in the state of Arizona. Let's go to Arizona's uh, website and look at their 
their licensing board and and truly do that verification ourselves and, and make sure that nothing has happened with that license since when it may have been printed out you know remotely so again that's the verific it's the same verification of licensure that we would do whether we were in a disaster circumstance or not and that needs to be done within 72 hours yes and it should be done within 72 hours of of this the time the person first presents and and starts working in your institution in this pandemic internet is up yes that probably can be done in the circumstances of katrina uh, power was out internet was probably out if you can't verify it within 72 hours you got to document then why can't I verify it at this point in time? What is the impediment to my verification process? And you then continue to try to get it done as quickly as possible as soon as the circumstances then allow. Thank you very much, Mary. So let's move on from disaster privileges to temporary privileges. Can you please explain to us under what circumstances they should be applied and how to do that? Yeah. And Temporary privileges is where there is a slight um, difference between the accreditation agencies on the types and the total number of types of temporary privileges that they allow, but they all have what are called basically temporary privileges for important patient care need. And that's temporary privileges we really want to address during, during this podcast because it is the simplest way uh, for people um, to get um, um, uh, privileged with the least amount of work. And temporary privileges are for, for important patient care need um, are those that, oh my goodness, um, you know, we got these exigent circumstances again. Uh, we may have that provider already on staff who doesn't qualify per se for disaster privileges because they're not new to the organization, but they're already on staff and now they want to do things like me, the family physician, who's been in ambulatory practice for the past several years, now want to go back into the into the main part of the hospital. I want to go back and expand my uh, privileges and my scope of privileges. Location, is not specific. I'm 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 allowed to practice anywhere under under the hospital, whether it's in these temporary facilities they're putting up, uh, whether I'm in their offices in a provider-based clinic, or if I'm in the main part of the hospital. I've already been granted privileges within the organization. So in those circumstances, geez, I can expand those privileges very very simply by getting temporary privileges for important patient care need. And there's only two things that are required, proof of licensure and proof of competence uh, when, you, when you again uh, look back at those joint commission requirements. And that proof of licensure and that proof of competence I've already been in the institution, that's easy to get. You probably already have my license on record, but you re-verify it. And again, that's all you need. And then you need the approval of the president of the medical staff. You need the approval of the CEO acting on behalf of the board, and you have temporary privileges to do so. So a very simple process for those already um, on board the on board in the organization. Um, 
we would recommend the emergency or the disaster privileges for those people coming on board from outside the organization, because again, that's the simplest process for those folks, the simplest process probably for those folks who are already on staff and want to expand their privileges, the temporary privileging process is the simplest to do. Well, you, you slid over something that I think is gonna need a little thought here, which is verification of competence. Because as you said, you were competent in the ambulatory environment. Does that mean you can take care of a patient on the edge of respiratory failure on a med surge floor or take care of a post-op patient or anyone else that you're, you're being used for uh, in this crisis? So I think there's a, and, and it really we use the language of how managed loose should we be versus how managed tight we should be. And when we have what we would call normal circumstances where we have time and resources to establish evidence of current competence, we need to be more managed tight, appropriately managed tight without getting too managed tight. But when we are now facing a crisis like this and we need warm bodies to get in there and do the best they can because that's all we got and we may have healthcare workers going down with COVID-19 themselves and getting pulled out so now we've got a really reduced workforce we're going to have to allow people to do things in a somewhat more managed loose way but still and I think this is the message for everyone to be responsible about this but also from those who license and accredit our organizations is we can't let go of our focus on the quality of patient care we're providing, even if we have to loosen up and become somewhat more managed loose in this. Any suggestions for that around disaster privileges? I'm sorry, around uh, temporary privileges? And and there I would look at, at a little bit of common sense in these exigent circumstances. Um, has, has this retired person or has this person who's in the ambulatory environment now wants those those temporary privileges when did they last did they run vents at all uh, were they were 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 they did they ever have those privileges is it something that they did at one point have the privileges for and maybe just need to be spiffed up some um etc and yes we're going to grant them those privileges um and when you think about it in the disaster circumstance we're potentially disaster privileging some folks who are retired and and they may not have have current competence but again we're going to 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 allow them to use common sense yes i know how to do this i can do this um etc and and allow them to practice to the limits of their capabilities and when you think about it even now with the cms in some of their waivers that they're giving they're actually allowing again state governors to allow medical students to conduct triage, diagnose, and treat patients under supervision of a of a licensed medical staff. Um, so at the, at the same point, we're having some of these individuals um, with some supervision be allowed to do things that they've 
never been privileged to do. So when we think of temporary privileges for somebody who's returning to the workforce, um, I think we're going to look at how long or returning to a privilege in the hospital that they may not have done in their current environment. We're going to look at how long, how long ago was it? What what did they do when they were here in the hospital and working? Okay, what are we going to to privilege them to do during this? And I think people are going to be, you know, the basic triages, the pay, the basic medical care, we may be privileging a lot of these folks for. Some of them we may be privileging to be in the ICU and in running vents, depending on on. Did they have those privileges before and how recently did they have them? But I think part of this is, as you said earlier, doing the best we can in the circumstances we have now and and and, and allowing both the organization and the practitioner, um, who again, our first proviso is do no harm. Um, they're only gonna be wanting to do things hopefully that that they know how to do and aren't going to be putting themselves or patients in jeopardy. And I think the, the piece you mentioned is supervision, which I think would be relevant to these temporary privileges. And this is for physicians. We should also add in here advanced practice providers, PAs, mm -hmm. advanced practice RNs, who will now be likely called in to do things that uh, were not previously in the scope of their privileges. You can't authorize them to do something outside of their scope of their license in the state, but you can increase what they can do with privileges. And the key, both for those advanced practice providers and for these other physicians who are coming into an environment where they haven't previously practiced recently and don't have evidence of current competence, is to provide the appropriate supervision. And this is where you may have an intensivist supervising multiple people who are now coming into that environment and putting in place what is reasonable for that kind of oversight, given the stress on everybody's time, energy, resources, mm -hmm. and patience. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that's about, as you said, let's be reasonable and put in place the right kind of supervision. And uh, can you speak to supervision as it relates to privileging? Do we need to put that into the privileges? What supervision will look like? How detailed does that need to be? If we're going to authorize people to do things they haven't done recently and we can't document current competence about. And again, this is one of those cases where where there's times in credentialing and privileges we want to be extremely specific. This is one of those times where I think we want to be a little bit vaguer um, because again, in circumstance to circumstance, um, people might be supervised um, by that, say that intensivist. Well, heck, they've been supervising, you know, the PA, the nurse practitioner the ambulatory doc coming back in, they may, after a point in time, realize, you know, how good they are, or et cetera, and they're going to loosen up those supervision privileges on that on that person versus some people they might ride herd on a little bit closer. So again, I don't think we want to be tied down by any specific language there. You know, um, I think this is one of those things that that are going to be somewhat adjusted on the fly and I think we might want to be a little bit vaguer in any kind of policy that you have. Okay and, and can we just spend a moment on emergency privileges? This is the statement that in an emergency anyone can do anything 
to save a patient's life. How does that apply in this setting? Um, emergency privileges are for people who are already usually already on your staff who are working outside of their scope of their privileges, usually on a specific patient, not in multiple patients, but they're working on a specific patient and they're working outside of their granted privileges. I, the family physician, who sees a patient and 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 they're not they're not breathing. There's no surgeon around. There's no intensivist around. There's no ED doc around. And oh my God, I need to do this emergency tracheostomy on this pa this patient, tracheotomy on this patient. And if I don't do so, they're going to die. I go do it, and then basically those emergency privileges are okay. We're covering you kind of in retrospect for having done that. That's not on the continuing basis that we see disaster and temporary privileges. So in these circumstances, we want to do the temporaries and the disasters based on where people are coming from. The emergencies are something that exist in our institutions all the time, but they're really the care of a specific patient because they're going to lose the life, limb, or organ of this patient unless I do this specific thing on this patient. So, so all disasters are emergencies, but not all emergencies are disasters. Okay. All right. So uh, let's now turn to what guidance have we received to date? And we understand it's changing, uh, and this is being recorded on April 1st of 2020. So actually April 2nd of 2020. And so uh, let's hear what to date guidance, what's the guidance we've gotten from CMS, Joint Commission, DNV, and the other accreditors regarding the extent to which they expect hospitals to comply with their standards during this pandemic, including when facing a surge in patient demand? And what does this mean for those on the front lines trying to cope with this? Yeah, and in here I think we'll start from the top the and go from CMS down to to some of the accreditation agencies themselves. And in a separate blog post here on our website, we do have a much more thorough discussion of some of that uh, some of those blanket waivers that that CMS is is allowing. So you may want to go to go to that. But some things I think that we want to look at right now in this, this podcast is CMS is allowing governors, again, to waive some of those statutory and regulatory standards that normally existed with CMS, uh, particularly regarding telehealth. Because again, what we want to do is try to decrease the, the burden on the um, emergency rooms. Um, we want to try to keep sick people at home as much as possible that that they're safely cared for at home so they're expanding and allowing more to receive care um, without going out by expanding and waiving some of the rules that they've had on telehealth and allowing Medicare beneficiaries to receive um, care through telehealth and allowing those telehealth providers to potentially bill um, Medicare patients, et cetera. So again, they're trying to reduce some of those regulatory burden on telehealth to expand telehealth. They're also saying that, geez, if you are privileged to do it in a hospital, you're privileged to do it via telehealth. Um, you don't need separate telehealth privileges to do that. So, so if you are that ambu 
that ambulatory physician, that ED physician, that, that other physician on staff and can provide care and have provided care in the hospital for something, you can provide that through telehealth means without requiring specific telemedicine privileges. Um, as we said earlier, the, the, they're trying to expand and allowing people to um, expand their scope of privileges easier, even allowing medical students to come out under supervision to, again, conduct triage, diagnose, and treat patients. They're, they're, they're in this waiver, they're also trying to allow physicians to supervise a greater number of advanced practice professionals, whether they're that that um, nurse practitioner, that um, CRNA, whether it's that physician assistant, they're allowing physicians to supervise um, um, a greater number of these individuals. Um, the other thing is, is um, they've also um, waived the need for Medicare patients to be under the care of a physician. Right now in our, in our hospitals, uh, under the conditions of participation, it states that all Medicare patients are under the care of a physician. Well, they're relaxing that now, realizing that our PAs and NPs are needed to supervise the care of these patients in these exigent circumstances, and not all of these patients may have the supervision of a physician. So I think those are many things that CMS is doing. And again, I would encourage you to go to that, that separate blog post on, on the CMS blanket waivers. I think, um, and I've only seen it now through Joint Commission. I haven't seen it on DNV or HVAP yet, but um, on a blog post from the Joint Commission on March 30th, um, they now are allowing appointments and reappointments to go over that two-year mark if not prohibited, again, by state law, and hopefully the governors are going to be be very um, cognizant of that as they're told uh, this by the medical profession and will grant those waivers, so that if your appointment actually lapses during this disaster, what's our chances of getting you reprivileged? Uh, not very not very good because many of our department chairs, our credentials committee members, our MECs, we may not be even having those meetings because they're being pulled out for patient care need. So therefore, how are we going to get these people recredentialed and reprivileged? Well, Joint Commission says, okay, we're going to allow them to go beyond the two-year normal reappointment cycle, but that time frame is expires 60 days after the end of the disaster. So just like you have to declare the disaster to allow disaster privileging to occur, at some point the disaster will be declared ended. At that point, then you have 60 days to get all that those things processed through your meetings and, and get those um, um, privileges done. I've not yet seen anything on, on DNV and HVAP uh, regarding that specific thing. But I think one of the other things that I think is just kind of good news for a lot of hospitals is one of the things they're always worried about is just 
the accreditation agencies coming in and 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 do, trying to do a survey and taking people away from patient care, and and the and the accreditation agencies don't want to do that. There may be times when there is, say, an immediate jeopardy or or some exigent circumstances in which there is a for cause thing that they they might need to come in and do. But from a routine standpoint. Um, HVAP suspended surveys on March 5th, the um, Joint Commission suspended routine surveys on March 16th, and DNV did the same on March 19th. So to a certain extent, they're trying to take away some of the things that might be a distractor for, for patient care during these circumstances. So I think CMS has done a lot of work up front by, by issuing some of those blanket waivers. Um, hopefully being acted on by many of the state governments um, to enact those waivers that then will allow us to do a lot more re regarding telehealth, allowing um, increased scope of privileges, allowing people to supervise more um, advanced practice professionals, allowing, allowing the medical profession to cope and take great care of patients in the best way they can in these circumstances. Great, thank you. So Mary, I wanna pick up one point. We were talking about disaster privileges earlier, and uh, I think it's important to make clear that there's uh, a, a requirement in order to utilize disaster privileges, the hospital must take a step to initiate their uh, their plan for dealing with emergencies. So what is the right language for that, that we make sure the hospital has taken that step? Yeah, and for for any hospital to utilize the disaster privileging process, what they have had to do is they have had to declare that, an, that a disaster exists and they've had to enact their emergency operations plan. So that would be the the triggering factor for allowing disaster privileging to occur. So is there any other advice or guidance you think would be helpful to our listeners regarding credentialing and privileging during this pandemic? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, one, um, remember, always credential and privilege using the easiest method for the situation, i.e. for people coming from outside the organization, utilizing the disaster privileging process, for expanding the scope of existing privileges for providers already on your staff, use the temporary privileging process. Um, so always use the easiest method for the situation. Two, um, focus on the credentialing and privileging piece. Frequently medical staff professionals, they've always been the ones that have gone out and researched things. They've gone out and done things. Well, they're not going to know necessarily whether the state government has made some of these waivers. Go put some of that burden on somebody else. You get, most hospitals have hospital legal counsel. They're much more familiar with where to find that stuff, um, et cetera. Rely on other Play other individuals to help you. You're not alone in this world. At the same point, when I think of many uh, medical staff professionals now working from home, work with your IT departments. Make sure that if you need double monitors, they furnish you with them. Make sure you have access remotely to all the software you need. So have your IT department help you and assist you in this. You shouldn't have to struggle and do things inefficiently. So so realize. You're not alone in the world. 
And I think the last thing I would do is stay healthy yourself. Work hard when it's needed, but when you're off of work, get that balance back in your life. Make sure you take time for yourself. Eat well. Do something for yourself. Get plenty of sleep because if you're sick yourself, you are not there then to help your organization in this process. So again, we advise people to follow all of the current guidelines on trying to prevent um, the spread of the COVID virus, et cetera, to prevent people from um, getting sick with this illness. So take care of yourself. So in recap, credential and privilege in the simplest way possible. You're not alone. Rely on other people if needed. And three, stay healthy yourself. Thank you very much, Mary. In closing, I want to point some of our listeners to another resource that's in our resource center. It's a white paper developed jointly by the Greeley Company and our parent organization, Chartist Group, addressing advanced practice providers and their role in the in how to respond to the pandemic. So I want to echo what Mary has said. Thank you to all of you who are on the front lines, who are taking care of patients in the face of this, who are dealing with unforeseen challenges, and we truly hope this podcast will help you do so. Please stay safe.